Amen. Turn to Proverbs chapter number 9. Proverbs chapter number 9. We'll meet there together in just a minute. Proverbs 9 will be in the first 12 verses tonight. How many of you are familiar with the saying, finish it for me, you are what you eat. There's an author named Eric Schlosser, what an interesting name that is. He says that if that saying is true, then America is in a whole lot of trouble. Eric Schlosser wrote a book called Fast Food Nation. I love the subtitle. Here's what it is. I know I'm about to step on some toes here. And we're not even to the Bible yet. The subtitle is, The Dark Side of the All-American Meal. I love some of the chapter headings that he has. One of them is, is this, Why do the fries taste so good? I, don't, I was a little fearful reading that chapter. Another chapter heading was, What's in the meat? Some of you remember the commercial, Where's the beef? Now it's, What's in the beef, right? Um, I came across a couple of facts that he put in his introduction. In 1970, Americans spent $6 billion on fast food. In 2000, Americans spent more than $110 billion. Every year, Americans spend more money on fast food than higher education personal computers, computer software, or even new cars. Schlosser reported that McDonald's is actually the largest owner of commercial real estate in the entire world. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, McDonald's doesn't make as much money off of their food as they do people paying them rent. Because all the franchisees have to pay them Rent. As a result, Eric Schlosser wrote that the golden arches are a more recognizable symbol than the Christian cross. Wrap your mind around that. He wrote in, in his chapter on why do the fries taste so good, he said this, that much of the taste and aroma of American fast food is now manufactured at a series of large chemical plants off the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, back in the day, McDonald's has always been known for good fries. I mean, how many of you like McDonald's French fries? Some of you are like scared to raise your hand. <laughs> They've always had good French fries. They've always been known for that because they used to fry their French fries in vegetable oil and then like a 93% of it was this beef oil. And then the USDA said, um, no, that's really unhealthy. It has more unsuch, unsaturated fat than your burger. So they put an end to that. And so I think in the 1990s, McDonald's resorted to what other major food companies have done in putting artificial flavoring in their food. The author of this book wrote that your food is less likely at a fast food restaurant to come out of a cookbook than it is to be featured in a trade journal for food scientists called flavorists. He said he visited one of these chemical plants in New Jersey, and it's um, a bunch of scientists running around in lab coats. He said that they had him do a taste test. But the taste test didn't involve food. He would dip a strip of white paper into a solution. And he said he closed his eyes, 
And he dipped this paper in a solution. And they asked him to guess what the food was. And he said as soon as he smelt what was on the paper, he said it felt like there was someone grilling hamburgers in the room. That they used this powerful flavoring solution to flavor your food. Now, I don't know about you, that grosses me out big time. In fact, this stuff is so powerful that one of the flavors, the scientists told him that one drop of the solution could flavor five swimming pools worth of water. Imagine that. Of course, I think all of you are aware that the rise of the fast food nation that we live in has not been to no effect, right? It's drastically affected the health of American culture. Many documentaries have been made, uh, such as the famous one called Super Size Me, that link the rise of the fast food industry to rising cases in obesity. Obesity is linked to more than 60 chronic diseases. And of course, we could go on and on and on and make you feel really guilty about the dinner you had right before church. But what is the point that Eric Schlosser and Morgan Spurlock, who was the director of Super Size Me, what is the point that these type of people are trying to get at? It's simple. You cannot separate what you put into your body with the health that your body produces, right? What you put in affects what your body can produce. I know many of you in our church are on diets, and I've had conversations with you where you just made some simple diet changes, and it's like, I'm a new person. I have more energy. I have, uh, I, I'm able to get up earlier, and uh, I just feel healthier. I've lost weight. And here's the, here's the thing, church. Every day, we have two choices when it comes to food. I'm not preaching about food, so don't worry. We can choose what's convenient, or we can choose what's best. Right? Are you with me? We can choose what's convenient, or we can choose what's best. This is a spiritual principle found in the Bible that we're going to talk about tonight. That you are what you eat. That every day, you have a choice to partake in what's convenient and what's spiritually easy. You can take what Jesus called in Matthew the broad way that leads to destruction. Or every day you face the choice to do what's best. To take the narrow way. In Proverbs chapter number 9, Solomon gives us a picture in verses 1 through 12 of a feast that wisdom invites the simple to. But then in verses 13 through 18, he contrasts wisdom's feast with what I, I love what one preacher called it. He called it folly's fast food. So verses 1 through 12, he's going to talk about the feast that wisdom has laid forth. And he's going to contrast it with verses 13 and 8 through 18, where he talks about folly's fast food. Here's what Solomon is saying to his son. Two feasts are prepared, but you can't possibly attend both. Which one are you going to choose? Look at verse number one 
with me. He, he describes wisdom's feast. Look at verse number one. He says, wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. What that's talking about is a large house in their day, one way to measure how big your house was, they wouldn't talk about square footage. They talk about the amount of pillars it took to hold up their homes. So in other words, Solomon is saying is that wisdom has a feast and wisdom's got a big house to hold a whole lot of people. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's invited to this feast. And then verse 2, he says that wisdom, she hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. He's saying that wisdom has a deluxe meal prepared for you. Then look at verse 3. He says, she has sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. Look at verse number 4. He says, whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Here's what he's saying, is that wisdom invites everybody to partake. He says the simple can partake. Now, I, I think maybe some of us would hesitate identifying with the simple. But I think all of us, if we understood what Solomon's talking about, the simple person is the person who could just as easily go down the road of foolishness as they can the road of wisdom. How many of you identify with that? Every day we struggle. Man, I could, I could just as easily choose foolishness as I do choose wisdom. And Solomon says, everybody who is simple, come and dine, partake of the feast that wisdom has prepared for you. I wonder if there are some young couples tonight that say, God, I want to get in on the wisdom that you have to offer so I can start my marriage off on the right foot. I wonder if there are some young parents tonight who, who in their hearts they say, God, I need all the wisdom I can get because I have no idea what to do with these kids. Apparently all of you know a whole lot more about raising kids than I do. Can I get an amen? Are there some parents tonight who say, God, give me some wisdom. I need some wisdom to raise these kids to love God. I hope that there are some teenagers tonight who are looking as the school year is about to start or just started today and saying, God, I need wisdom to make some right choices this year and to get connected with the right kinds of friends. And here's the good news tonight. If you want wisdom, God has some for you. That if you want some wisdom, the door to wisdom's house is wide open. You just have to accept the invitation. But here's the problem. Is that as welcoming as wisdom is, folly lurks around the corner with a more convenient option. Look at verse number 13. He says, a foolish woman... Is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. I believe he's speaking metaphorically. Then look at verse 14 and 15. For she sitteth at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. What is Solomon saying there? He's saying that just as much as wisdom wants to invite you to partake in wisdom's feast, that folly is sitting on her front porch. And as you come by, on your way to the deluxe meal that wisdom has prepared for you, Folly says, hey, why don't you take the easy way and stop in for some fast food? You know, every day we have two choices. And sometimes, isn't it true, 
It's a lot easier to stop by the drive-thru of Follies fast food. But here's the question tonight. We know wisdom is ready. We know it's available. But here's what Solomon's going to answer that I want to talk about tonight. Is if you want wisdom, how do we get it? If wisdom's invitation is open to everybody, what do we have to do to accept the invite? I believe Solomon's going to give us tonight three actions that a simple man or a simple woman can do to begin their journey of wisdom. Here's number one tonight. In verse number six, here's what Solomon says. He says, flee the foolish quickly. Flee the foolish quickly. Look at verse number six. He says, forsake the foolish and live. Now, when I, I actually preached this passage several months ago, and honestly, I never connected the, the fact that verses five and six are tied in together. Because you read verse number five, Look at verse 5. He says, come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I mingled. And then he says, forsake the foolish and live. And so you're maybe getting the idea that it's just like 10 through 31 in, in the book of Proverbs, where everything's kind of disjointed. It's just a bunch of aphorisms. But I'm really convinced tonight that Solomon says, hey, you're invited to wisdom's feast, but if you're going to partake of wisdom, there are some certain things you have to do. There's some certain things that need to line up in your life, and the first one that we have to do, we have to get this in our minds, is that we have to forsake the foolish influences in our life. We have to forsake the foolish. Why? Here's, here's the truth, church. I think a lot of you would agree with this. You can't pursue wisdom until you get rid of some toxic influences in your life. That try as you might to read good books... And as much as somebody might try and pursue a relationship with God, all of that is good, but if somebody has some toxic, foolish influences in their life, the chances are that they're going to go down the right path and then they're going to veer off. He says, forsake the foolish. Well, what is a fool? A fool is somebody who rejects authority. It's someone who thinks that they know what's best. It's somebody who's irritated by and mocks those who correct them. It's, it's somebody who's not pursuing righteousness with God. Here's what, here's what a fool is. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should share very little values with a fool. Because a fool cares nothing about God. They may even have an appearance that they care about God. But in their heart, they care nothing about what God thinks. A fool lives their life in secret. A fool could be the person you hang around with at work who's more interested in complaining about the boss than they are doing a good job. A fool could be the teenager you hang out with that you know their life better than their parents know their life. And that they care nothing about the, the authority of their parents. They care nothing about other authority figures in their life. And so much of their life is just lived in secret. That's a fool. Did you know a fool could come to church too? Did you know that it's possible to come to Fellowship Baptist Church and for there to be people who group up who are foolish in their thinking? That you can go to a Christian school and just because you wear a Christian uniform or just because you show up to chapel doesn't mean that there are not fools sitting in the chairs with you. And so I think sometimes we let our guard down and we think, well, 
yeah, they're a Christian, or yeah, they come to church with me. And we, we don't think about people that we spend time with, and we're not discerning to know that we're spending time with toxic, foolish people. I'm convinced that for a lot of people, really, the greatest barrier to them pursuing wisdom is not that they need to read their Bible more, it's that they need a change of friends. It's not that they need to attend more church services because they're here every single one of them. It's that they need to get rid of the people in their life who authenticate every bad decision they want to make. Uh, many of you, uh, I've told my testimony before, my first half of high school, I live life for myself. I live the typical carnal Christian teenager life. I was associated with foolish people, uh, associated with people who lived the party lifestyle. I hung out with them every day. I played sports with them. And when I was going into my junior year, I went to church camp. I'm thankful for church camp. Because I went to camp, and, and what's amazing, and, and God is so good, I went to church camp with the intentions of doing some of the most unspeakable things. That, why would a teenager ever think of doing those type of things at church camp? And God got a hold of my heart there. And God used the preaching of his word there to just change my heart and to break my rock-hard heart and, and to just give me new desires. And that whole summer, I was wanting to serve God, and I was reading my Bible, and I was on a new path, but I dreaded going back to school. Because I knew that if I sat at the same lunch table, if I hung out with the same people on the weekends, that I'd be back to the same Mike Collins that I was my sophomore year. And I remember being fearful. I mean, we, we talk about, hey, you need to forsake the foolish. A lot of people, honestly, they're like, I don't know who I'm going to hang out with. I don't know who I'm going to sit with at lunch if I forsake the foolish. There's not a whole lot of wise people to hang around. I remember God crossed my path with a brand new church plant in Oro Valley, Arizona, and a young pastor named Alfred King, and I was 17 years old, and my only friends were boring married people. And I stopped going to parties and started going to game nights. And I stopped hanging out on the weekends with people who did bad things and started going to church work days. Hey, listen, that sounds about as boring as it gets, but I'm so thankful that God gave me some good friends to hang out with, and that they were older, and they wanted to live for God just like I did. We were all just young and wanted to serve God, and we were on this new church plan. I'm telling you, that decision made a huge difference in my life. And I, I'm convinced tonight, if I hadn't changed my friends, I wouldn't be here tonight. A change in friendship, a lot of times, is a change in direction. Church, can I just encourage you, just be practical tonight. Can you just evaluate who you spend time with? That if the conversation's always turning to gossip, and the gossiper won't change, maybe you should stop having a conversation. That maybe you shouldn't accept the next invitation to hang out with that group. Say, oh, I don't have that, I don't want to say, sound like I'm holier than thou. Hey, listen, you don't have to, have this weird confrontational conversation, just stop saying yes to hanging out with those people. And God will do the rest. How do we pursue wisdom? We flee the foolish quickly. Now look at the end of verse number six. 
I love how Solomon just practically says, and go in the way of understanding. See, it's not just good enough to get bad influences out of your life. You need to embrace some good influences. And the way that that happens a lot of times is just as simple as listening to godly correction. What do we do? We flee the foolish quickly. And then verses 7 through 9, Solomon encourages us to listen to correction carefully. Look at verse number 7. He says, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. What is Solomon doing? He's He's comparing two different people and how they respond to correction. He talks about how the scorner responds to correction. When a scorner is corrected with truth, the scorner responds with anger. The scorner responds with trying to retaliate at the person correcting to him, right? He says that they getteth, uh, the, he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. What he's saying is that it's, wor- it's not worth the trouble of correcting a scorner. Because all they're going to do is come after you. But a a scorner, they respond with anger. But then he talks about a wise man in verses 8 through 9. And a wise man, they receive correction. When someone is going to correct them, they may not like it, but they receive it. And they're a better person for it. How many of you agree tonight, we all love to be right? I mean, I would even say it this way. We don't just like to be right, we live to be right. I mean, some of you, you'll make a fool out of yourself trying to be right in an argument. Me too. We live to be right. But, but here's the problem, is that you don't have to like correction. I mean, no one likes it. But you do have a choice in the way you respond. I think a lot of us, we say, well, I'm not a scorner, I'm not going to retaliate and I'm not going to go and be extremely dramatic and and yell at people but I think a lot of us oversee that that being a scorner is a lot more subtle in our hearts see you might be a scorner if when your wife gives you loving correction she has to duck and hide because the husband's going to get defensive he may not physically strike back but man he'll take her down with his words You might be a scorner if your husband tries to lovingly guide you and correct you, and it turns into this big dramatic scene. You might be a scorner if your boss has no liberty to give you correction. Are you with me tonight? A lot of times our our scorner attitude is a lot more subtle, that, that we don't fight people. We try not to blow up, but we dismiss it. We we have an attitude, we roll our eyes. We're unapproachable. We're closed off. Listen, friend, that's just as much of a scorner as somebody responds with anger. God says, if you want to pursue wisdom, you have to embrace correction. Why is that? I'm learning this, that that really the most valuable lessons you'll learn are the hardest ones to learn. That that, that the greatest nuggets of wisdom that God has for you are often on the other side of correction. That it's the things you don't want to hear, but it's the things you need to hear most. 
That's why we need correction. What do we do to receive correction? We forsake the foolish quickly. We listen to correction carefully. And then number three, you approach God humbly. Approach God humbly. Look at verse number 10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What, what is fear? It's not talking about being afraid of God. It's a humble reverence. Church, would you agree tonight that that's so easy to approach God too casually? That we get casual in our prayer time? We, we, can, we can become too casual about our sin, and, and rather than mourning over our sin, we just act like it's not that big of a deal to God? That rather than hating sin as God hates it, we just act like it's just a little bit distasteful? We have a problem with fear. I, I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said that low thoughts of God are the cause of a thousand lesser evils. Here's what he's saying is that, that really the root of all sin is just the fact that you don't esteem God high enough. That the reason people don't listen to correction is not because they have an authority problem, it's because they have a God problem. You say, no, my boss is, a, is this or this or that. No, listen, God put that person in your life. If God put them there, your problem isn't with them. Your problem's with God. Your problem's not with your spouse. Your problem is with God. How do we get this reverence? Look at the end of verse number 10. He says, In the knowledge of the holy is understanding. It's, it's just as simple as this, church. The more time you spend with God, the more you fear you have in your heart towards God. That you can't learn to be reverent towards God if you don't spend time with Him. And, and I know we touch on this a lot in our Bible classes, but here's, here's why. Because honestly, if we took a survey, how many of you spent time with God five days this week? We'd probably be a little disappointed. And then honestly, this is just such a cornerstone practice of the Christian life. It's just as simple as, Spend time with the Holy One. And as you spend time in God's presence, as you're in His Word, as you're in time in prayer, God works in your heart and you begin to have a more reverential attitude towards God. That as you spend time with God and as you get to know God better, you start to hate the things God hates. How many of you have noticed that you hate the same things your parents hated? Man, my mom used to get annoyed at some of the smallest little things. And now I get annoyed at them. My mom used to have these personality traits. My dad, why? When you spend time with people, you hate the things they hate, and you love the things that they love. How do we get wisdom? We get it by approaching God humbly. And church, it's just as simple as cracking open the Bible to get into the Word every single day. Every day. How do we get wisdom? We flee the foolish quickly. We listen to instruction carefully. Number three, we approach God humbly. And then verses 11 through 12, Solomon reminds us why it's worth it. Look at verse 11. He says, for by me, this is wisdom, for by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. Now I read that at first and I thought, well that sounds selfish. If I'm wise, I'm wise for myself. Here's 
what Solomon's saying. He's not saying that we should pursue wisdom for selfish reasons, but he's saying that just practically, the person that benefits the most from wisdom is you. The family that's going to be benefited the most by your wisdom is your own. Your life will be increased. You want to have a joyous, rich marriage? Pursue wisdom. You want to have a great time in your four years of high school and make the best of it? Live your teen years with wisdom. It may seem boring to the world, but I'm telling you, I may have played game nights, and I may have gone to church work days more than I went to parties in high school, but I had some good memories in high school. I'm so thankful for that. You want to have a good family life, church? Listen, it's just as simple as picking up God's word and applying your life to wisdom. How many of our senior saints tonight are thankful they live their life for wisdom? Never met somebody, Pastor, and I know, I know you've done this a whole lot longer, that regretted living their life for wisdom. Never met somebody. Here's what he's saying. Look at verse number 11. He says, For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. Now that sounds like he's saying that your lifespan will increase. And I think in the Old Testament, God may be tied together physical blessings with spiritual disciplines but here's what i think solomon's really getting at is that wisdom may not add days to your life but it'll sure add life to your days that the fullest most richest life you could live is a life lived for wisdom here's my challenge to you tonight this isn't a cry at the altar repent of your sins type message but here's what i want to encourage you to do i want to encourage you to pursue wisdom. So how do I do that? Well, first, if you have people in your life who don't fear God, who influence you, you need to separate from those people. It's just that simple. But really, here's what I challenge you to do. And here's what Solomon's doing in, in chapter 9. He's prepping his son for chapters 10 through 31, where he's going to have a whole banquet table of wisdom. Let me encourage you, church, just get in the Word, one proverb a day. I'm telling you, I've been doing this in my Bible reading recently just because I felt like I really needed some wisdom in my life. Man, God will fill your cup up every day. You just say, God, give me some wisdom. God, give me some wisdom. What does James say? That God giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Wisdom may not add days to your life, but it'll add life to your days.